Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Mary. I am a member here at Redemption, and I'm going to be doing today's reading for us. It is in the book of Esther, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll go all the way through chapter 3. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see what Mordecai's words, whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel.
And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is God's word for us today. If you would, just pray with me as we get ready to look to God's word. Father, we want to quiet our hearts and prepare our minds even now to hear from you in this very text, which we trust you have inspired for us and for our good. It is a dark story. Uh, it, it, it opens the door to a number of fears and anxieties that your people have no doubt experienced for many, many centuries, and we pray you'd give us wisdom and that you would help us to first see them and understand them for what they were back then in this day, and also, God, that you would give us wisdom to understand what you have for us today as we face uh, threats or opposition of any kind uh, from the world that we live in. Give us a kind of hope and confidence this morning that you are with us as you had long ago for these people in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> to many it seems like the relationship between the church and the world around us uh, is changing. Uh, probably not in the scope of all of history, but, but certainly, at least in most of our lifetimes, it's changing. For quite some time, there didn't really seem to be that big of a contrast between the church and the world. Uh, most people out there in the world were probably also Christians with some kind of church of experience, and there was hardly ever anything that happened in the world that would have a kind of negative impact on the church. But as Christianity has lost influence in the culture, as affiliation with the church has become less and less commonplace even, and as we've also experienced a handful of unique cultural problems. In the past few years, churches have faced more challenges than most of us would have expected, uh, including uh, anything from COVID-19 and all the controversies surrounding it to sharp disagreements over things like politics and race. And now, at least for most of us for the first time, we've been faced with these new and often loaded questions about the relationship between the church and the world. Should our government, for instance, even be able to stop churches from meeting? If so, why and, and for how long? Uh, do churches have to abide by mandates from government powers, even if many disagree with those mandates or don't see the need for them? Uh, to what extent and how should churches strive to bring about political change? And if so, uh, for what issues? Why those issues? And how do we decide? And with everything so polarized, is it even possible for people with different political views to worship together as members of the same church anymore. There's one question to sort of summarize all of these tensions. I suppose it might be, as God's people, what should be our posture toward the world around us? And why? Toward the culture at large, toward the government or any other kind of, of earthly powers. How do we make sense of the, all these new tensions? How do we respond? Will it get better? Should we even expect it to get better? Might it get worse? 
Many churches have, have answered these questions very differently, and it has caused some confusion, uh, to say the least. But in our passage today, we are thrust into a story in which God's people face far worse opposition than we will likely ever face in our lifetime. This was a dark and terrifying time for God's people uh, as they tried to feel their way through exile uh, amidst a hostile enemy nation with incredibly wicked leaders, as, as they wondered also, with, with God feeling so distant from them in exile, whether or not he would deliver them. He certainly had in the past. They knew that. But would he still deliver them now, now that they were in exile? In a way, this story is meant to instruct us uh, first about what to expect, I think, from a sinful world that has rebelled against the God we love, but also, and more importantly, where God fits in to all of this and what we can expect from him as we try to find our way in exile. The story begins pretty early on with a reminder that Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. We read this last week, but Esther and Mordecai were cousins. Their families had kind of lived through the exile, and because Esther was orphaned, uh, Mordecai, who was likely older than her, kind of had adopted her in as if she was a daughter, and so he was more than likely something of a father figure to her. And this comment about her obeying him is probably meant to make Esther and Mordecai stick out a little bit in this story, uh, because unlike all these Gentile leaders and, and their wives, like Queen Vashti uh, last week, uh, these two seem to have a, a very strong and loving relationship. And not to mention, of course, the fact that King Ahasuerus did not know that his new queen was a Jew will also become very important in the story as it progresses. So she, she does not tell anyone she's a Jew as Mordecai instructed her. But then there's this really interesting story about Mordecai really helping out King Ahasuerus. As he was sitting in the city gate, Mordecai overheard two of the king's eunuchs who were his servants who kind of tended to the needs of his family, and they had a plot essentially to kill him. It says they became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That's almost certainly what it means. They were hoping to kill him. So Mordecai tells this to Esther. Esther passes it on to the king. And then we read in verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. We're meant to read this and be reminded yet again, this was a harsh and brutal nation. If anyone transgresses this king even just in word, even with a plot or a plan. There's a zero-tolerance policy. He will not be in prison. He will be hanged on the gallows. And in particular, I want you to have this image of gallows in mind, seared into your memory for the rest of the book. Because if there is one image that summarizes the danger that God's people will soon be in here, it will be a noose and gallows but there's also an incredible redemptive thread in that very same theme. For now, though, if anything, Mordecai and Esther were in the good graces of King Ahasuerus. 
Until next, another man named Haman enters the story. Haman, it says, rose to power sometime after this incident with the eunuchs and Mordecai. He was basically rose, he basically rose to become second in command. It even says the king set his throne above all the other officials who were with him. It also says the king commanded all the servants at the gate to bow in the presence of Haman, which becomes a real problem uh, for Mordecai because he refuses to bow. And the way this is written, I, I think we're supposed to at least notice something about some nuances in Mordecai's relationship with this pagan nation and its leaders. Because on one hand, right, he's happy to help the king. Uh, by letting him know of this plot to attack him. Uh, and in fact, this idea of sitting at the gate is actually a reference to some kind of position of local leadership. It's almost like a, a city council even. So he clearly wasn't just anti-Persia, anti-king. On the other hand, there was clearly some kind of limit to his allegiance here. He would not go so far as to bow. Now, we don't know exactly why Mordecai refused to bow. There's some purposeful ambiguity here. The author doesn't, doesn't tell us that. It could have been out of spiritual devotion to God, as if there's some sort of religious spiritual component here. It could also just be an ethnic thing. Uh, Haman's said to be here in Agagite, and they are known to be some of the earliest, most vicious kind of prototype of, of, of the God's people's enemy. They're kind of a nagging force in the story of the Old Testament long before this. But apparently... As these servants kept pressing Mordecai, eventually he told them it had something to do, his refusal to bow had something to do with his being a Jew, which he tells them he is. He is a Jew. Again, after he told Esther not to mention that. So chances are they probably had to drag this out of him a little bit. He did not share this willingly. And when Haman learns that this is what's going on, that this is why he refused to pay homage to him. It says he was filled with fury. This is not a mild response. Again, we're, we're reminded of how brutal, how harsh, and really even just how absurd these Gentile leaders were, especially when next we read, so, in, in other words, because he's filled with this fury, as they made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all, all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, in other words, rather than just addressing this conflict with Mordecai, the one who had offended him, because Mordecai refused to bow in some way because he's a Jew, Haman decides, you know what we're going to do? We're going to commit genocide against all of the, the descendants who are related to Mordecai. This was all so extreme. And yet again, another example of how proud, of how power-hungry, and just how over-the-top absurd these pagan leaders seem to be. Not to mention, the original Jewish readers would have read this and thought, this is who our ancestors were up against. These are the kinds of nations that we were conquered by and sent into exile with? Now, you can easily see how in reading this, in that context, this situation would seem utterly hopeless. Right? How could these Jews stay faithful to God in a land and among a people like this? 
Was there any hope of them being set free from this kind of oppression and injustice, especially in light of this strain in their relationship with God, in that they were in exile. They were, in a sense, under his judgment. And then something very subtle, but also very interesting happens. And here we have to start paying very careful attention to the months and the days. It says in verse 7, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. So this is when they started casting lots in this way, sometime in that first month. And they cast, cast it, lots, month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So this is apparently an eleven-month process. So here's what's going on here in, in this casting of lots. First, by all accounts, it seems like Haman and his servants were doing this to try and determine the date of the genocide they were planning against the Jews, which is what he proposes next to the king as soon as this process is done. But the process was not as simple as just picking a few dates and casting lots and figuring out which one it would be. Instead, it seems like this was some kind of pagan ritual where chance through chance, basically a seemingly random method of making decisions, the Persians would try to determine the will of their pagan gods. And so eventually, after this complicated 11-month process, apparently, they stopped casting lots. Okay, guys, we have the date. We're ready, finally. And then Haman goes before the king to ask his permission to kill all of these Jews, to plunder their goods, and to deposit them in the king's treasury. And he receives that permission. The king allows him to do all of this. Again, not knowing that Esther, his beloved wife and queen, was one of these Jews. Then in verses 12 to 15, we read about an edict that was written and shared on the day throughout this kingdom, uh, on the day and, and following that this decision was finally made. And notice the scribes were summoned and this edict was penned, it says, on the 13th day of the first month. And the edict itself said that the Jews should all be killed in one day. One day. On the 13th day of the 12th month. There's two important things I want you to notice about these dates. The first is more obvious than the second. First, again, this is incredibly brutal and absurd. I mean, really, they are announcing a genocide that would take place in one year's time. Hey, guys, uh, we're going to go ahead and kill all the Jews in our kingdom, just so you know. Uh, we're going to do it yeah, sometime next year, around this date. Can you imagine how ominous that would feel? This would be a pretty rough year. And we even see at the end, the king and... And, and uh, Haman sit down. They're having a drink, right? But everyone else is thrown into confusion. More importantly, though, as we consider the significance of these dates, there is one thing that sticks out. After this complicated pagan process, the, this edict went out on the 13th day of the first month. This is according to the Jewish calendar, and I realize not all of us are quite up to speed on our Jewish calendar, uh, but look at this with me uh, from Leviticus chapter 23. It says this, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. 
In other words, Haman and King Ahasuerus announced this genocide on the eve of the Passover. The day before the Jews would have celebrated being set free from Pharaoh and being delivered out of slavery in Egypt long, long ago at the very genesis, the very beginning of their story as his covenant people. Now, this is where the genius of this passage really shines through. It is also, I think, a great example of that purposeful ambiguity we talked about last week because, and I'm convinced this is basically the point of the passage, all of us can read this one detail about Haman announcing the genocide here on the eve of the Passover, and we kind of have this choice to respond in at least one of two ways. First, for instance, we might think, oh, what an atrocious pagan man this is. How dare he disrespect the Jews in this way on top of all these wicked things he's doing. We can respond that way, or we could think... <laughs> This fool may have no clue, but God is going to deliver these people. He's going to do it again, just like he did long ago at that first Passover. Throughout the entire story here, there is virtually no room for any hope of deliverance. These pagans are so vicious. They're so brutal. They are so absurd. There's just no way to escape their fury. But when, we get to the, they, when they get done casting lots, and when they announce the date of this genocide, it's as if there's a little crack in the door. There's a, a little faint, thin gap of light, and God comes barreling through it. This one little detail, at the very same time, both provokes anxiety. Uh, God, we, we're going to kind of need to be delivered here again. Are, are you still into that sort of thing? Right? But it can also bring profound hope. Oh, yeah, we, we, we've been here before. There's no way this ends well for Haman. Just watch. And, and church, I think that at this point in the story, the real question is which of these instincts will win out in us? Will we be crippled by fear and anxiety as we face often admittedly terrifying opposition or even in the face of that opposition, will we look back on God's faithfulness in the past and cling by faith to the hope that he will deliver his people yet again? Church, if we read this story with that kind of faith, waiting for God to just burst through the door and come to our rescue, then we will read this story, I trust and see. It may not seem like God will deliver us, but he will. He will. There may be all kinds of legitimately terrifying factors converging together to squeeze us into a seemingly impossible situation. We may face threats of all kind on all sides. It may look really, really bad for God's people. We may even wonder if we even want to be God's people right now. That would be the perfect moment to remember God's perfectly sovereign track record. And to be reminded of his words here, even from Psalm 81, where he says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. 
You shall not bow down to a foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who says, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he says, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. This is what God wants from his people. A deep, abiding confidence that he will deliver us against all odds as he did long, long ago in the days of the Exodus. This God will orchestrate every circumstance of history even in very quiet, often subtle ways to see to it that we are delivered. And today, as God's people, we have a far greater promise of his deliverance to cling to. Because long after this, on the week of another Passover celebration, his very own son would be put forward and crucified. He would face the brutal and absurd opposition of a sinful and unjust world. He would face these things for us on his own by being nailed to a bloody cross in our place for our sins so that we could be delivered and set free once and for all. And then he rose. He would rise again in victory over sin and death with a new kind of power, saying this, telling us that all authority on heaven and on earth had been given to him and also giving us this powerful assurance. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, that is where this story is headed. And by the way, that is what's at stake here in this plan of genocide as well. These exiled Jews in Persia are the distant ancestors of Jesus. <laughs> he will be born into this family line. And so if the, if the Persians do move forward with this genocide, there would be no Jesus, no cross, no resurrection, no salvation. And so what we can see here, I think, is that the, the opposition we face, it may seem intimidating, the thought of how things might progress in the decades ahead. It may feel incredibly ominous, but God's people have been here before. Time and time again they have, and every single time our God has proven he is faithful to deliver us. And so with that in mind, I think there are at least two things we need to take away from this story. I want to make a note. It says these are two very much related takeaways. Now, usually the takeaways are related in some way, but even more so, I mean that today, these are not separate points at all. The part of the point of the points is they must go together. We need both of these things. You understand? First is this. Let's expect opposition from an unjust world. Let's expect opposition. If we want to live faithful Christian lives here in exile, it is vital for us to believe this. This is in large part what this book, I think, is meant to do for God's people. It's meant to remind us this is a thing and to instruct us as we face it. Now, I imagine this is one of those polarizing claims that people will respond to in one of two ways. Uh, some of you may be thinking, oh, praise God, I'm so glad I'm at a church that actually says this kind of thing, right? But others, maybe our less confrontational brothers and sisters, might be thinking, oh boy, see, I always get a little nervous when passages and sermons go in this direction. I hope we don't fly off the handle here right, and get everybody all riled up about how wicked 
and sinful the world is. Now, the truth is there's probably some wisdom in that sort of instinct. Uh, there is certainly a danger in being far too cynical and pessimistic about the world in very unchristlike ways. Uh, there is, as if there's just nothing good about the world ever at all. No one made in his image. Uh, zero examples of common grace. Every non-Christian just kind of walks around like a, like a zombie foaming at the mouth. But I think there is a needed correction here for those who are a bit more non-confrontational in this way, uh, who tend to resist this idea because they're afraid some might take it too far or, or because it just seems very unpleasant. Uh, we do live in a world still today that has rebelled against the God who made it. We do live in a world still today that opposes God's people and his plan of redemption. Jesus even told us, his disciples, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's Matthew 10, 22. I just want you to consider that sentence. Take that in. Is this the Jesus that we follow? And if so, we, we need to consider what this does mean about our relationship with the world. In John 15, he puts it this way. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you, he says, out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Church, on one hand, we are by nature all children of wrath, Paul says, like the rest of mankind. And praise God, he was merciful and he was kind to redeem us out of this sinful and unjust world that we very much contribute to. On the other hand, we can see here, we are no longer of this world in that same way as Christians. As Paul says in Galatians, King Jesus has come to deliver us out of the present evil age. Now, that's, that may sound yucky. It is. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do we even think of this present age we live in as evil? Do we live our daily lives with this sobering reality in mind from, from James' epistle? He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church, if we, if we do not believe this, and live accordingly, if we expect no opposition from the world and, and live right at home here in exile, as if we're just buddies with everyone, the truth is we, we may be buddies with everyone, but we're enemies, James is saying, with God. Because this world is under his judgment in a just and righteous way even. Uh, the author Richard Nyber describes this very non-confrontational kind of worldview and the theology that accompanies it in this way. He describes it as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And when you put it that way, <laughs> really it does sound a little absurd, right? And I, th I think in some ways it is. Uh, if the world is not really opposed to God or his ways or his plans, then why would God send his son to do something so horrific as being nailed to a cross to make things right? Why would he pour out his wrath on his son if no one's really under his judgment to begin with? 
Why would he care so much about establishing this new heavenly kingdom if, if this nation even right here is basically a good and mostly Christian endeavor? If, as we, if we can expect peace and, and, and even support from the powers that be. Church, let's not be naive. Whether it be from radical left-wing groups who want to tear down anything even remotely Christian about the world we live in, or from radical right-wing groups that use Christianity as a political tool to keep and or gain power, or from some other cultural group with huge earthly power and influence, we should expect that the powers that be in this world will not be friendly to our cause. Friends, the powers that be in this world, the, the nations even, including this one, are corrupt. There are a few things that clear in the, in the truths of Scripture, and, and often even in the same kinds of unjust, absurd ways that we see described here. Telling parents that they are abusive if they don't affirm their child's confused sexual instincts, or even, in some cases, the desire to surgically change their gender, that is absurd. It's very real. And if our little gospel thing conflicts with that cause, there may be hell to pay. It may not profit the world to tolerate us, as we see in this book. In the same way, defending and continually supporting a president who told his vice president to overturn the election he just lost and sent an angry mob to go and disrupt the process. This is absurd. And it is very real. And listen, if our little gospel thing conflicts with that cause, someday there may be hell to pay. There is no end to what this world will do to get and to keep that first kind of grandiose earthly power we saw last week. And if our little gospel thing here gets in the way, you just wait. We will be mocked. We will be dismissed. Someday, maybe openly persecuted. If someday this happens, will we be prepared for it? Will we have a category for it? Will we even be expecting it? Or will we have been telling ourselves the whole time, no, 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 that's not, that's not how this works. Now, without a doubt, thankfully, right now in this context, we are not faced with violent persecution. This is true. We should be incredibly grateful for the opposition we don't face in this world throughout the history of God's people in most times and places, that is the exception and not the norm. But it is so, it's just so important for us to know this deep in our hearts as God's people. We are not at home here. And we should not expect this world to make it feel like we're at home here either. This passage is meant to remind us how uncomfortable this world has been for God's people throughout many, many centuries and it's important for us to take this in. It's important for us to feel the weight of this and to take it seriously. But here, again, is our second takeaway, which, again, absolutely must go along with the first one. On one hand, yes, we should expect opposition from an unjust world. And on the other hand, we can also count on the deliverance of a sovereign God. We can count on it. This is in large part the driving point of the passage because of this purposeful ambiguity to it. The point is basically that many will read the passage and never see this at all, the sovereign deliverance of, of what God? 
many will read this story and only see the absurd opposition of an unjust world. The real question for us is this. Will we count on the deliverance of our sovereign God, even when things look really, really bad and we can uh, not be sure if he even would deliver us, will we count on that deliverance or not? Will we miss the subtle glimpses of his sovereign hand at work in the casting of these pagan lots? Will we miss the quiet providence of this edict going out on, you know, the eve of his greatest deliverance of all time? Will we be so distracted by the loud and absurd opposition even of this unjust world that we forget to wait, church, and to look with anticipation for our God to deliver us from it? As this story progresses, we find out how God does deliver his people from this threat. Uh, One of the most important takeaways is that, listen, he still does that sort of thing. He still does. We may be in exile. We may be here because we really blew it in some ways. We may be surrounded by all kinds of terrifying threats or attacks even. In the meantime, God may seem distant or even silent. It can be really bad. But even still, we can rest. He's done this before. God's people have faced far worse, and time and time again, he has proven himself faithful. This entire story of redemption is filled with one miraculous deliverance after another. But how is he going to deliver us from all these terrible, ominous threats we face? And when? Oh, goodness, I don't know that. And neither did Mordecai or Esther or the rest of the Jews this day that the edict was sent out. That is really the entire point. We won't know. It may even seem like he won't. The absurd opposition of this world may seem far more certain and more powerful even, but when it does, church, let's turn to these famous words of King Jesus from John chapter 16, where he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, he says, almost as if we should expect it, right? You will have it. But take heart, he says. I have overcome the world. No matter what kind of opposition we face from this world, we can count on Christ to deliver us because church, he has already overcome it on his cross. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as times of uncertainty continue, as we approach and move forward towards even not far from now, an election year, which is known to be tumultuous. And in in a time when It just doesn't seem always so clear where you are in all these things and how we should seek after you and look to you and trust in you. But God, we pray you would help us today to see specific ways that we can, not to look to some other earthly power, but to hope and to wait in the promise of your deliverance, which you have shown us through the ages. Give us this faith and bring us together, bind us in unity and love, 
based on this faith and glorify yourself as you get about to delivering us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.